I'm not sure this is a question you want to answer, but um, are there, do you have competitors? What's the worst interview I ever had? <laughs> I think it was when Mike Gibbert was talking to David Hammond. But. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. It's the 100th episode of Nitrateville Radio. To celebrate, I start with an interview of myself, talking about how and why it's lasted this long. Then, who else belongs on the 100th episode but most frequent guest Ben Modell, talking about what he's been up to lately. And before video killed the radio star, there were soundies. I talked to the curator of a new set of soundies from Kino Lorber, Susan Delson. I hope after 100 episodes you know that you should subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And it's been almost a year since anyone left us a new review on Apple Podcasts. So if you have the urge, do it, do it. Thanks. ago I started Nitrateville to give people a place to talk vintage films, by which I meant not Ghostbusters or even Casablanca, but the rich and deeply obscure film heritage that finds its way to us on video, in books, and at festivals worldwide. Six years ago I thought what the world needed was a podcast devoted to the same thing. Little did I know that before long we'd be in a situation where we couldn't go to the movies, and a podcast on the discussion site it was attached to would be two of the only ways our community could stay in touch with each other. So it's been quite a run, and to celebrate the first hundred episodes, I thought the best person to talk to would be, well, me. So I asked my friend and fellow Chicago food writer David Hammond to interview me. David is also a film aficionado, though not as manically so as most people at Nitrateville. We chatted over lunch at his house in Oak Park, Illinois. Last week, Carol and I went to the Science and Industry Museum, where we went to my favorite section, Yesterday's Main Street, or something like that. It's like this old built-up version of old-time right. Chicago. They have a little movie theater in there where it used to be you could pay a nickel and see The Great Train Robbery. And that was the, I'm pretty sure that was the first silent movie I ever saw. So my question to you, was there a vintage movie that you saw as a Ute uh, that made a big impression on you and may actually have started you thinking, you know, I'd like to learn more about this, this form of art? You know, I think it really started for me because when I was growing up in the 70s, that was the heyday of this nostalgia craze. So there's a lot of W.C. Fields and Marx Brothers and, you know, Universal Horror and things like that. It's not silent, but it got me comfortable, certainly, with watching 
creaky old movies that were black and white and all that stuff. I mean, I really liked those. They're just they're just part of the background. You know, you go to a pizza parlor and they're showing them on the wall. And I'm sure my first silent movie experiences were something like that. I was probably in junior high or maybe just beginning high school. So, you know, think like 13, 14. And the film society at the university showed The Navigator and The Boat, both of Buster Keaton. And I just walked out of it on air. It was just magical, you know, this this weird guy who... Partly it was that they were very funny, but they kind of didn't even need to be funny. He was just sublime and in mystical union with the universe. And, you know, so I, I have loved Keaton ever since. In your in your interview with, I think her name was Bessinger. Uh, yeah, Jenny She Bessinger. said she was at a showing of a, a witness for the prosecution. Okay. She said she was in the theater watching it, and when there was a third act switch... She heard a, a gasp from the audience, like, didn't see that coming, which told her that a lot of these people in the audience had never seen this movie before. Sure. Which started me thinking, are there a few like key films that you feel uh, the aspirant, let's say, or the aspiring cineast should make sure they see? Films, that, almost like the, you got to see these to get in the game. I mean, sure there are, and I'm sure there's a thread somewhere on Nitrateville that's, you know... The essentials. Where do I where do I introduce, you know, what should I introduce a new silent film fan with, or whatever. Um, I don't know, I, I kind of... I've certainly done plenty of that, and I have a tendency to like doing, you know, list things that teach people how to get into something. At the same time, I sort of feel like that becomes reductive because it's not like you watch these 30 films and then you can check right. off silent film right. you're done. Um, it's a fairly infinite universe. And to me, you know, just keep disappearing down these alleys and checking them out. Um, yes, I mean, you should see Intolerance, The General, Metropolis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um that's obvious enough. Or for the people you're appealing to, and I do want to get to the demographic for uh, Nitrateville, because I think it is a very select group. I mean, I've listened <laughs> to a number of broadcasts, and after about 15 minutes, it's like, I'm, I don't know who these references are to. And by design, I'm not saying that's no, a flaw no, no, no. I, I should be better about that. Well, I'm not sure how you the, would be, but... Like, specify, you know, like... Giving filling in that background, or what the uh, the guy you're talking about restoration, and they kept referring to uh, matrices or the matrix of the movie matrices. Which honestly, I'm not entirely sure. What, I googled what it. You know what I got? Neil. Yeah, of course. Right. <laughs> it's like that's. I mean, a lot of that technical stuff about technicolor or whatever. Yeah, any form of restoration. I mean, I there are times that I wonder, is this too obscure for this audience? And then those episodes always do fantastically well. I, they are talking to people who live that stuff, know right. that stuff. So when they hear a podcast, it's actually addressing those things they've been thinking about. And no one else in their friend group has, would even and know the, what the hell And no other podcast. I mean, that's part yeah, of the thing yeah. for me that's, that is great about doing a podcast is... You know, if you're not looking to commercialize it, which God knows I'm not, you know, you can just talk about the thing that the people you know are interested in will be interested in. And you don't have to, you know, back up and do the, you know, 
the newspaper thing of step back and step back explaining something. It's like we can assume we all know a certain amount of this. And if we don't, I mean, either I can work it into the introduction a little bit or I can, you know, or just like hopefully it's it's kind of clear in context. I mean, you know, I, I read a lot of H.L. Mencken at a certain point and he was great at like using a $5 German word. But it was more for the music of the word than because he really thought you would know what Gesamtskunstwerk meant. Um, but it was just sort of funny to throw a great big heavy word like that in. May I suggest, as a rule of thumb, an unsolicited suggestion, that when you come across a word like matrix, if you don't get it, then I, I think there's good a good chance that at least 50% of your listening audience is not going to get it. So you might consider either setting it up in the beginning. And, and sometimes I think of it to do that. But sometimes, I mean, you know, listening to Jack Theakston talk about how three-strip Technicolor worked is the, the moment where you're picking it up, right. I think. So. Oh, well, maybe there's... If there's a pause or it seems like a moment when you could drop your voice down a little bit and say, in case you're wondering, a matrix refers to... All right, well, welcome everyone to What's Wrong with the Nitrofield Radio Podcast. Do you feel that Nitrateville is fulfilling your mission, whether that mission was ever clearly articulated or not? <laughs> um, do you feel like it's doing the job that you wanted it to do? Yeah, I mean, you know, the way it came about, it was, you know, when I first got on the internet back in America Online days, there was Usenet, and one of the Usenet groups was called alt.movies.silent. And Usenet, you know, some people sort of romanticize it as this, you know, early Wild West Proto. internet. Um to me, I think it indicated a lot of the problems that were ahead, which was that someone who was a jerk could just run roughshod over everybody. Stupid fights would go on for 300 back and forths, you know, which is why at Nitrateville we have a rule that you can say anything twice, but not three damn times. The cool thing was that you could, if you weren't a jerk, and, you know, you just approach people reasonably respectfully. You could chat with people who are actually involved in film restoration or festivals, uh, all these kinds of things. You know, so I'm, I'm like posing questions to people whose names are on DVDs I bought, like David Shepard or somebody like Bob Burchard, who was an Emmy Award winning editor, author of some books and also one of the guys who ran Cinecon out in L.A. You could chat with him a bit. I did a little research when I was just a throwaway thing for Bertrude once because he wanted to know something about what was playing in movie theaters in relation to some, I don't know, something that had, I don't remember what it was. But anyway, so, you know, I mean, that was cool that I could interact with these people that way. Um, and then Usenet just kind of died. It got overrun with spam. You know, more than that, I mean, it was just sort of overrun with these stupid debates. A lot of places started dropping Usenet. It basically died. I mean, it still kind of exists, but nobody uses it for anything. And I just thought, you know, since you and I had both been involved in starting a food chat site, you know, I knew what went into it. And it's just not that much. It just required knowing what you were, you know, how you wanted to set it up. So I did that and I became the landlord of 
of the silent silent and early sound movie discussion world. It always amazed us when we were on the Food Chat site that you and I helped start, or the one we were on before that, that people would say, yeah, a long-time lurker, you know, I've been lurking for six years or something right. like that, never posted. It would occur to me, how in the world can you be on this site for six years and never write any, any post, any response? However, after going to Nitrateville, I could see why that would be, because just about all the discussions, like, you have to, unless you're just going to, like, was Charlie Chaplin really a woman or something, some ridiculous proposition, right. you don't need to know anything to present. But you need to know, that they, there are some barriers to entry, and the key one, as far as I can tell, is knowledge base. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, no, you need to know like... a fair amount, which gets me to who's your demographic, which you don't have to answer as part of this question but i think it's just nerdy guys who are into old movies i don't know what else it would be you know guys and gals um but yeah i mean we saw the same thing on the food site where it's you know i think it was gary who said the chow hound was basically food 101 but our site was a little more grad school uh because you did assume that you ate places you know, more interesting than Burger King. And I think it's kind of the same way. I mean, yeah, it, it, it could be a little off-putting. I'm sure it is sometimes. But also, I mean, you just, just ask your question and people mm-hmm. you know, people answer it. You know, which, which Buster Keaton film should I start with? You'll get an answer that includes every film he ever made, but uh, you'll at least get some interesting response. The podcast kind of a natural outgrowth of the board, the discussion board. Um, but it's also a lot of extra work for you. <laughs> you got to read the books, you got to research the topic, you got to get some questions together, talk to the guy, record the talk, edit the talk, and so on. Why did, why did you do that? Why are, you, why are you going to that trouble? I'm insane. Ah! I, uh, I knew it! <laughs> you know, what it's not more work than is transcribing an interview with somebody. And I think that was that's really the the motivation in the beginning was that early on on, on alt.movies.silent, you might hear from people who are involved with restorations there, but not surprisingly, the people who are doing actual work were less likely to spend a bunch of time goofing around on the internet about it. Film collectors can be demanding and persnickety types and you know this this attitude of well i want to see the 1930 version of you know viennese knights or whatever uh and i'm sure at least you know that all my friends would too why doesn't warner brothers just put this out for the massive audience that clearly wants to see it well there is no massive audience that wants to see that i thought it was good to talk to the real people involved with things and better understand the real world that impinges on these decisions to restore something and put it out and so on. But again, I do enough interviewing people and transcribing what they say. I didn't want to do more of it. So I didn't want to like go interview somebody for 30 minutes and then write it up. It was much better to me to take it as audio, you know, and podcasts had certainly been popular enough by the time this one started in 2017. To just be able to let people hear directly from these people that didn't involve me typing it up. I also think it's good to hear their voices. Yeah, you know, to yeah. Hear these people and you talking to them and how they respond to your questions and it feels uh, 
Yeah, it feels like you're in the same room with them. Yeah. Well, it's funny. The Yeah, the, the comments on the very first episode were mostly, gee, that isn't what I expected Mike to sound like. And I don't know, do they, they think that I sounded like Rick Kogan or something? I expected more of a plummy British accent. Yes. But. Welcome to Nitrogen Radio. <laughs> or, you know, but like, you know, Rick Kogan is one of those guys that sounds like, you know, unfiltered luckies. Chicago journalist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know you know that. Every now and again, you refer to resources uh, that people might consult for. Are there any like standard, for the neophytes such as myself, any standard uh, references? It could be online, could be in print, that people can go to for background information. Like I think a, that's kind of an old-fashioned way of doing it. I mean, when we were growing up, you know, that's what we yeah. what we knew because we went to the library and we looked in certain mm-hmm. books and there weren't that many books back then, you know. So I read certain William K. Everson books, you know, all the through all the way through eight times because I had nowhere else to read about these things. And I mean I can still tell you the Dewey Decimal numbers for the film section at the Wichita Public Library. Uh, which is the might same might be the same as the way it's Park the same library. as anywhere <laughs> else, but I mean that's what yeah, I know yeah. from uh-huh. you know uh, 791.4309. Uh, so, you know, there is, um, it, it's just, that was how we did it. But now I think what you do is you go on Nitrateville and you can ask a specific question and you can read what people have already posted about it. Um, I mean, not that I have anything against books. I own a few myself, but you know, there's there's just so many different ways to interact with that world of knowledge that have come along. And to me, that's that's what's, you know, there's lots of things to dislike about the Internet era. Um, but to me, that's what's rewarding about it is that this stuff got so much closer to me and it was, became a world that I was able to enter because of the... Yeah, the, the very accessible aspect of, you know, being able to chat with people online about this stuff. And they were other people who had seen things and knew things as opposed to, you know, in your hometown. I mean, I was relatively well off for that in that I had a bunch of friends who were also interested in old movies and would we'd all go to these things. But still, that meant I knew five people in the whole world who were interested in it. And then suddenly it becomes... A gazillion people, some of whom are in, they may be in Europe or Japan or whatever. So, you reference social, the social milieu of movies quite a bit. That is what, in fact, you lent me that book, uh, Monster. What was it called? Oh, The Monster Show. Yeah. Which was great. One of yeah. my favorite books. Yeah. Uh, and of course, he, he makes a lot of connections between the World War One atmosphere right. and the movies of dismemberment and horror that followed. Sure. Um, and there are things like prohibition and world wars, World War II. Um, what other large social changes have you seen to have a huge impact on specifically vintage movies? Women are such a big part of it, you know. The changing role. The changing role of women and just how women are portrayed from, you know, from like the teens to the 20s to the 30s. The teens, it's cute, slightly tomboyish young woman mm. who you know to mm. the, the Mary Pickford type and then 
in the 20s, you start getting more of the flapper types or just kind of sassier types or whatever. And then you get the really hard-bitten ones in the 30s, you know, the Barbara Stanwyck type things and stuff like that. And I mean, I think you could show me a scene of a major dramatic scene for an actress in a movie. And if I didn't know what the movie was, I mean, I could probably tie it to when it was made pretty well just by the quality of the film and how it was photographed. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good at that. I you guess. are very good at that. It f- surprises me frequently, as I know it surprises even your wife, <laughs> when someone will mention a movie and you'll say, yeah, that was 1926. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, unless you went through and consciously tried have some amazing no. mnemonic prop that allows you to remember. But I'm there guessing are things. There are clues, know, right? Yeah, are, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, that you would not... You wouldn't have made this movie in 1923. You don't have really close close-ups until a certain point. Um, and you... It just the way things are photographed, you know, how, how much shadow is used, certainly how they're cut together. I mean, it's just things like that. I've seen enough movies, too many movies, to, you know, just I can, I can kind of pin something down to a period um, pretty, pretty, pretty accurately. The subject matter, the cutting style, um, who's in it, well, yeah, <laughs> what, what sure. they look like in the movie, yeah. look young, old, whatever. Yeah, yeah, I mean, certainly the, that's... You know, those are those are the easy giveaways. But if you showed me a completely unknown movie with stars I don't particularly know, you know, yeah, I think I can tell you if it's thirty-two versus thirty-five. You know, there's just there's That's a pretty tight range. There's so. a, there's mm-hmm. something really specific about sound recording, cinematography. Mm-hmm. You know what you could get away with because obviously between thirty-two and thirty-five, you have the code come in. Um, yeah, it's just a lot of those things. I think you can you can pin it down. Do you think there's any? Uh, I mean, aside from the fact that you can start a good fire with it, any advantage to nitrate film? I mean, as far as picture quality, that is an interesting question that I asked years ago, probably on all the movies silent. You know, I said it's it's basically just clear plastic either way. What is What's the big deal? And the best answer I got, I don't know if this is true or not, but it was the one that the people who seemed to know the most said that convinced me, was simply that the prints were better made. There was a lot of silver content in nitrate stock. So the image was just more lustrous. And oh, yeah? Do you, do, do you believe that's true? I, it makes more sense to me than the idea that two kinds of uh, clear plastic had completely different character. So, you know, I kind of I kind of lean to the idea that there isn't some magical aspect. I mean, it seems heretical to be dissing nitrate on nitrate. There are some people who clearly know a hell of a lot and they have a lot of seniority and cred. And then you have people who are obviously just newcomers and don't know too much, so you got to treat them gently and get the answers out of them and, right. and answer any questions they have. Is there a major complaint about Nitrateville or objection, let's say, that you would like to answer right now? I think there's a certain... There are some people who I know personally and I'm friendly with in person, but who nevertheless feel like 
Why are people allowed on here answering, you know, asking stupid questions? And it's like, well, because it's the front door. It's the front door to the whole subject. Um, and we all started somewhere. So I don't object to someone coming on who only knows a little bit and they ask a question about that little bit. That's okay. It's possible the the question is really stupid, but it's also just possible it's a question that, you know, is new to them. It's just not new to you. So, What do you do with those people who... Uh, answer their question. No, no, no. I don't mean the people who ask that dumb question. So, so uh, the people who object to it? Yeah, people who object. Like, what the hell are you doing on here? This is a serious discussion group. I mean... What do you do? They... Without losing them, because you don't want to antagonize them. It's hard, because, I mean, some of them... I mean, I have, you know, banned a very few. But it's hard, because, I mean, you hate to drive out people who have a lot of knowledge. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're chasing away new people by letting them just run roughshod over it. And you can't have that. So, I mean... Yeah, but the other thing about it is, I, you know, I, I have, you may find this surprising, but I can be kind of sarcastic and snarky. And oh, really? Um, that was very sarcastic of you, Mr. Hammond. Um, anyway, and, you know, being the guy in charge kind of forces me to play nice, too. So, um, so you know, it makes, it makes me a better person. Lockdown and COVID was a very good time for my vintage film education because I would watch something from the Criterion Collection every night. Sometimes two things. All the Japanese movies I ever wanted to see I saw like right out of the box. Um, so I, And also I wrote a book. Yeah. <laughs> COVID. I mean, so it was kind of, and I lost like 40 it was a It was a good time for me all around. I don't long for it to come back, but it was good. What, what was the effect, good and perhaps not so good, of COVID upon you and your productivity in the vintage film world? You know, like you, I had a good, I had a good COVID uh, lockdown period. I didn't die, so that's plus one. Uh, my kids came home from school, and we watched a lot of movies, and we cooked a lot. So, you know, life is, life is good. Um, and I think... You know, it was interesting. I mean, the, the two things that I was really involved with in terms of Nitrieville were things that weren't specifically affected by, uh, by COVID. I mean, people were still talking about movies online and they could listen to the podcast and I could record the podcast because most of the time it's not like this where we're sitting opposite each other, but it was on the phone. Um, so... That wasn't a problem. I mean, the world did change, and I wanted to kind of chronicle that a little bit. So there's a number of of episodes of, of the podcast where I'm talking to what someone is doing now. You can't show movies. So, you know, it's like Ben Modell started the silent comedy watch party where he was showing movies and playing for them in his apartment. And, uh, you know, it just became the same, kind of keeping the community together. In, a, in an interesting way to me that, you know, we can all watch this movie at the same time online and, you know, then you can talk about it on a nitrate bill. I have one other question for you, and I think it's very appropriate for the 100th anniversary. Okay. But th- interviews you did over, over the last 100 episodes, 99 episodes, that changed your way of thinking, blew your mind, caused you to readjust your perspective, reconsider, rethink something 
about vintage films? You know, I mean, certainly there are individual subjects where I learned a lot. Uh, You know, what did I know about, like, Salka Viertel or Aline McMahon or somebody before talking to the authors of these books and reading the books? Um, In a a more macro sense, I mean, there's, there's an episode where I talked to... Uh, this guy named Rudiger Suxland, who had done a documentary about Nazi-era film. And to me, that's a really interesting area because it was a highly skilled industry that had been artistically important, you know, in the silent era, certainly. Um, but obviously, it's under very different conditions. You know, there's a, there's a point where Suxland says that Germans couldn't really do a frothy comedy by the late 30s. They could do something that kind of felt like a comedy. But there's no irony in Nazism. One of the fundamental things of comedy is not open to you at that point. Versus like in America, where one of the things we're being ironic about is Nazis, you know. like in to Great be, dictator. To be or not to right. be or something like that. So, I mean, that really kind of helped me understand what is filmmaking in a fascist country like there's clearly talented people uh you know and and some good films but is there a great film from that time i kind of think not because greatness requires an openness to understanding humanity that was was verboten at that point right there was a large portion of humanity that was not recognized as human right but also just lots of things about how you know, you just make a movie about a man and a woman meeting. There are certain things about how they meet that you couldn't have done in Nazi Germany because that's not how people are supposed to behave, so we don't depict that in films. So that's one. That's cool. Yeah, maybe one other one. Just to... Yeah, the, I mean, there's a, there's a quote in the Cinema's First Nasty Women uh, interview I think it's Alif Rungan Kainakchi of uh, iFilm in the Netherlands, says something like, everything's cataloged, certainly. You know, if you wanted films about domestics working in houses in that time period, you can search for maids and you'll find lots of movies with maids. What you can't do is search for ironic, subversive maids who overthrow the household because people didn't catalog it that way. They're, you know, cataloging tends to be very literal. So very little, literal or linear, even right? That's very uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know. What you mean. Uh, I mean, maids. Okay, maids. Um, what you don't necessarily write is subversive maids, and so ultimately, you know, cataloging helps you some, but you got to just look at the movies, and a lot of it is digging out movies that nobody's looked at for twenty years or a hundred years. And actually looking at them and seeing what they contain. And obviously a lot of that is just going to be fishing that doesn't catch a fish. But um, occasionally you're going to find remarkable things that nobody in 1955 would have even thought about. Well, that that character is bending the, the genders. Uh, well, nobody wrote that mm-hmm. in cataloging it back then. So, And I think that's, that's kind of an important general lesson, not just about cataloging. It's like... Just because a book wrote wrote something about D.W. Griffith, say, doesn't mean it's true. You should watch the movie and see what you think. 
And you can't just rely on the books of the past. It's all it's all stuff to keep going at again. I mean, there's certain things that maybe are not, you know, maybe enough has been said about Shakespeare at this point. But I can assure you that, you know, people have not said enough about Maurice Turner at this point. This compilation is aimed at specialists, but it is a sterling example of the kind of homebrew work that is now possible in film preservation, and where much future effort will doubtlessly lie. Dave Kerr, The New York Times, June 14, 2013. That was Dave Kerr writing 10 years ago about Ben Modell's earliest video releases, and making a forecast that has come true about how Ben has pioneered a way of successfully bringing vintage movies to home video audiences with music by himself. That's him playing for Tom Mix's Sky High behind me. Most frequent guest Ben has been on Nitrateville Radio to talk about video releases with people like Marion Davies, Douglas McLean, and Musty Suffer, about the silent comedy watch party when COVID first hit, and again after a year to see how it was going, and other stuff, because he's always got multiple irons in the fire. His label, Undercrank Productions, was 10 years old in June, and his latest release is a pair of Tom Mix Silence with, of course, music by Ben Modell, coming out on July 11th. I spoke with MFG Ben for the eighth time from New York, and asked him to tell me about 10 years of bringing old movies to new fans. It's been quite the journey. Uh, it started out with a stack of rare or way out of circulation comedy, silent comedy shorts that I had. And I figured if I, nobody can see them, then they're still lost. So I, uh, you know, that the first release I did uh, in June of 2013 was accidentally preserved, uh, which was a kick had been kickstarted uh, the year before. Um, and I think Kickstarter itself had only been around for a few years at that point. So this right. is this is the first time uh, somebody had gone to the fans for funding to get a, a classic or silent film DVD re- release to happen. And, you know, it almost uh, within a year or two led to the co-branding deal that I have with the Library of Congress. Because my second Kickstarter was for the mishaps of Musty Suffer. And uh, after, you know, the first two accidentally preserved discs, that was the next thing that that I I worked on. And it's just slowly and gradually snowballed uh, from there. You know, we have put out DVDs of of films that no one's heard of or seen since they were in release. uh, And as well as films that actually star people you've heard of, Raymond Griffith and Tom Mix and and. Uh, the the films directed by Frank Borzaghi and the the half dozen Marion Davies silent films that were made before Show People and the Patsy, uh, and in the last year we we moved up into Blu-ray so that uh, we can offer both formats. Yeah, I I have to think. 
I don't remember which one, probably Musty Suffer. It has to be the first time I ever did a Kickstarter, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, as in put money up to get one. Yeah. Well, it was, it was very new at, at the time. Uh, nobody was really, it was still, you know, today, any, anytime somebody turns up a can of film, somebody on Nitrate will say, who's going to kickstart this? And, <laughs> you know, yeah. of course, you know, we're, you know, 10 years later, we're all really used to the idea of pitching in and making things happen. And, and not only folks like me or Ed LaRusso or uh, Bob Fermanick and the 3D projects, uh, but, you know, Kino has done a couple of Kickstarters. Everybody's uh, jumped on the bandwagon, but it's been a great way to be able to fund the production of something that would not normally uh, be fun- be fundable or, or worth uh, the the time, uh, money, and and effort because it doesn't star Buster Keaton. Right. Well, and, uh, not only you know that it's fundraising, although obviously that's important, but also it's it's publicity. You know, it gets everybody excited about this coming out as a release. Where you know, as the grapevines and such of the world know, if you just put something in your catalog. Who knows how quickly people will discover it? They won't have any sure. urgency. Oh, I can order that someday. Yeah, yeah. The 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 long tail is a little longer in some cases, and 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 that was something interesting that I discovered uh, doing the Tom Mix uh, disc that'll come out in July, which was not a Kickstarter, which where where the funding came from another source, and uh, I'm still trying to get you know working on getting you know some awareness of it. Luckily. Uh, both films were licensed to and aired on Turner Classic Movies. And so they got an airing and uh, uh, the word will get out. But Ray, the Raymond Griffith project has been, you know, the, the excitement has been percolating for a, about a year, basically. Yeah, and let's talk about uh, getting stuff on TCM because in many ways that, I think, for a lot of people is the ultimate validation of what you're doing, that it's not just some you know some guy doing a thing that he doesn't really know what he's doing but that uh you know it has the tcm stamp of this was professionally done and is worth checking out um how how do you you know how do you sell something to tcm it's not easy uh because uh, like like any venue that i work with as a film accompanist whether it's something where uh, I'm working with them or they uh, they've contacted me, the programmers have their own tastes. Uh, so, sure. and I uh, like I found over you know the last couple of decades of doing silent film shows is that venues uh, either they have somebody there who gets silent film or they don't, and it's you know it's either I don't hear back or we take out our our date books immediately. Um, yeah. <laughs> And and in the same way with TCM, there are things that they're they're interested in or not, and uh, I don't fault them or get you know, upset or complain about it. If I if there are things that they like, great. If there are things they're not interested, okay, uh, nothing you can do about that. Yeah, and move, it, it, move it, it on does, to the next one. Yeah, it's all all you can do. Uh, and the 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 one thing that does appear to be uh, a criteria is something related to old Hollywood. So. Uh, Ed LaRusso and I have had very little difficulty getting uh, some of the Marion Davies silent films up on, on, on to, onto TCM. And and really, when I pitched the Tom Mix uh, films uh, a year and a half ago, uh, I didn't have to explain, you know, 
That's uh, good. But you know, with with Beverly of Krausstark, I had to go where this is the plot, and it's this is this, and, and it was kind of like you had me at Tom. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I didn't have to say yeah, well, yeah. We'll take the Tom mix. Oh, okay. Do you want it? No, it's fine. But I, I also knew that Scott McGee is a huge Tom Mix fan. Okay. Uh, when I was at the TCM Classic Film Festival in 2019, I accompanied a double feature of Tom Mix films that that Scott uh, introduced along with Anne Mora from MoMA. So I knew that I had a shot there. It, there are things where you, you would go, oh, gee, you would think that dot, 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 like uh, the Edward Everett Horton silent comedies. Uh, uh, didn't didn't pique any any interest, but there, it's rare that TCM will will uh, pick up uh, a comedy shorts, right. uh, and 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 it's not over either. Uh, the the films are are getting uh, shown at the Horton shorts. Uh, people are, are are buying them. They're they're screening them. Um, the San Francisco Silent Film Festival is going to screen three uh, of the Horton shorts in July, and I'll be accompanying them. And uh, so it's it's you know you, you it's it's all spaghetti thrown at the wall and you see what works and what doesn't and TCM may be uh, some kind of a stamp of approval um, and and having Jacqueline Stewart introduce one of the things I've I've produced and scored uh, as being a good friend of TCM uh, mentioning right. me that way is it, it's not and my mom loves that you know and, and my wife <laughs> sure. gets a kick out of that as well but um i think that it's really it's really uh, about the fans and those of us who like these films uh telling our friends about them or buying an extra copy and, and giving it to them uh tcm is wonderful but it's the fan base and and um shameless plug you know forums like nitrateville where people can can find out about things with it that maybe the New York times hasn't written a review of it because they don't do that anymore. Yeah, no. And you know, it's interesting too. I mean, I think people on nitrateville who don't live in major cities where films are going to be shown regularly, you know, tend to look at it in terms of it. Well, it doesn't exist. It hasn't really been shared with the world if it's not on TCM or if it's not on home video, but Everything has different paths to being seen. So, yes. you know, if, if it's not on TCM with you, it'll be on home video so you can get it. Go start a series at that Elks Hall that has a nice auditorium in your right. town. And, and you can get and get the movie from you and show it or, you know, whatever. There are lots of paths for films to get to you that, that just obviously did not exist in the 16 millimeter, you know, basement oh, gosh. days. Yeah. Just in the last, I mean, even in the last 10 years, the, 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 uh, uh, the quality of, of video projection that, that is available. And, uh, the fact that pretty much every, every church library theater, et cetera, et cetera, has a video projector of some sort for movie night or, or whatever, uh, and the fact that there's so much available currently on 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 Blu-ray that just looks really good, it's just gotten very easy to do a, a classic film show or a silent film show, and it's something that you, uh, listener of, of of Nitrate Bell Radio, can actually can actually do. Uh, it may be a little scary at first, uh, or you <laughs> yes. may be a little uncomfortable, or something like that. Or like that. me, you'll still have nightmares about uh, full houses and having the wrong film thirty years after you stopped running a sixteen millimeter series. Yeah, th things things happen, but um, 
you know, uh, it, 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 it is certainly possible and worth giving a shot. If you're interested in the films and, you know, don't worry about getting 800,000 people to show up at your first show. You know, you develop an audience and there's a, there's an art and a craft of programming that, that helps att- attract people in, but it, it is definitely possible. I mean, just looking, uh, every, every year at the end of October, uh, pretty much every, ch- almost every church on the country is showing Nosferatu <laughs> or, uh, Phantom of the Opera. or Phantom of the Opera or, you know, Jekyll and, Jekyll and Hyde. And I mean, it's, it, it is definitely possible. And I think that that's a big part of, of uh, keeping keeping all this alive and what I call audience preservation is making shows happen is yeah. more more important uh, uh, than, than than anything. Even if it's just getting a bunch of friends to to come over and show them something that you backed on Kickstarter that I produced or or that somebody else did. Uh, have a little movie night at your house. Uh, speaking of making shows ha- happen, we've talked about it many times here at Nitreville, but the silent comedy watch party is still going strong. Yeah. Still chugging along, even though people can't actually get out of their house. They're no longer trapped with you is the only way to see uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> silent films. So, yeah. yeah, tell me about that. Well, the silent comedy watch party, uh, we're doing our shows once a month now. Uh, we celebrated our third anniversary in in March, and uh, uh, one of our super fans in South America, Leticia Magalhães, uh, keeps track of how many films we've shown and puts an entry in Letterboxd uh, for <laughs> everything we show. So, and she let us know that as of our last episode, uh, the one in May where we had uh, Elif Rungenkanecha and Maggie Hennefeld. Uh, come and talk about and share films from the cinema's first nasty women box set. We are now up to 240 shorts uh, yeah. on, on the series and uh, all the episodes are still there. They're archived there. They're there on YouTube and um, people are discovering the show. Uh, there's somebody I follow on Instagram who is making a project of watching a lot of silent film and is going back and watching our, our older episodes from 2020 and posting reviews and stuff. So it, it's there. We're going to continue. Um, there is still, as like you just mentioned, there are people who live in areas where there is no art house cinema and there isn't silent film shown. And this is the one way they can see it. And uh, I think ideally uh, the, the best way to, to experience the show is synchronous viewing, as they say in the universities. Um <laughs> But to watch it live, I mean, we, you know, I think the number of people who watch the show live has has dipped or dropped uh, in the last uh, year once everything started to open back up. But pe- the number of views we get by the end of the week is still the same. Okay. Um, I think for m- most most fans and most pe- presenters, this was a stopgap measure and a way to keep going. And then once we could go back to in-person cinema, there were. There was less of an interest in in um, broadcasting live uh, silent film programming. Yeah, but you know, I th- I think it was still even if people watch it late, it's still just kind of connects you to a community that you are sharing in this event, and it was happening, you know, and it's not like putting on a a DVD you own. It was you know being part of this idea of film culture existing out there, even in that terrible time. Sure. So, so and, there, you know. 
And for those of us who are doing it, uh, I mean, I find it's as as difficult and technologically complex and stressful as it is to do a live show. Um, it's actually easier than pre-recording. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's something there's something that's a little easier about knowing it's we're just doing it the one time and this is it. Even you know, when we have like you know we had two guests on uh, the last episode and we may continue to do that, although it's because of bandwidth and processing power of my of my equipment is not always easy to do um there is just something uh, a little bit more uh just the flow of it and knowing that it's a happening and maybe when you're watching uh the episode that we just did in may you're still aware that you're watching something that was done as a live event and it still has a presence that way um all right so we are on to yet another new world. I guess the, the latest new thing is that you, as you said, you're doing Blu-rays now. Yeah. Um, what else is, is ahead for you? Well, uh, we're, we've been working for a while, uh, on a, a project with, uh, Kathy Fuller Seely, uh, a, a new restoration of a film called the craving from 1918, um, it's on YouTube. It's from the iFilm Museum. And what we've been able to do uh, with that is uh, get uh, acquire uh, uh, the file from iFilm and have it stabilized and cleaned up. And it looks all, tons better. Uh, and the other thing that, that, that Kathy did is she worked with a few people to translate all the Dutch intertitles back into English. And then we've hired somebody, uh, Jesse Pierce, to create titles that look like what a Universal Bluebird release from that time would look like. Uh, so the film will will will. It's almost a different movie because there's so much more that you can follow and understand. Sure. Um, and then that'll be filled out with a few other shorts. I mean, one of the things I noticed uh, in particular with uh, the restoration of of uh, the craving is that even without uh, the digital cleanup, just stabilizing uh, a, a silent huge. film. It makes it makes it so much easier to decode what's going on, and uh, just just that much uh, alone make, makes it easier. So this is something that we, I'm guessing, will be a fall release. It, it it's one of a number of projects that uh, uh, have been uh, circling the airport because uh, I took on the the Lon Chaney Volume Two, although that was mostly John Marsalis's production. Uh, the Frank Borzaghi thing, working with Andrew Simpson and the Tom Mix and the Francis Ford and the Raymond Griffith at the beginning of last year, figuring, well, I have plenty of time. And then uh, all the in-person shows came roaring back into reality last September. And so we're slowly getting these things finished up. There was this eight month period of just double duty and that I'm recovering from a little bit. But we <laughs> we have. The Raymond Griffith uh, coming out in June, which I'm really excited about. The Tom Mix, which, you know, uh, um, Tom Mix films uh, really deserve uh, the, uh, the, the, the high-end treatment. These are 2K scans that have been restored, stabilized. Um, the, orig the original tinting and toning uh, scheme from Sky High has been reinstated digitally. A crystal cut you found. Uh, uh, the original continuity that it outlined the tinting, uh, which was in the in the nitrate that was preserved in black and white, and the big diamond robbery nobody has seen. Right, uh, it's Tom Mix's last silent film, 
nobody's seen it since the summer of, of 20, 1929. And that's something where we uh, worked with two elements. We worked with the, the scan of a preservation of, of an American release version from the Library of Congress and then uh, a a 35 millimeter nitrate from the lobster films collection, which the library of Congress uh, scanned. And uh, it's, it'll, it, it's, it'll be great for people to get to see Tom mix and to know who he is. Everybody's heard of him. Right. But uh, you know, nobody, nobody's seen one of his movies. Um, uh, you know, Tom mix made 83 feature films and that's not counting the, the, the ones that were uh, cobbled together, together from one right. reelers. Right. But from 19, I think 1919 through the end to 1929, 83 feature films. And uh, thank goodness, you know, Grapevine has made some of these of the earlier ones available. Um, uh, So there's some there has been something to watch. uh, But, uh, you know, the Tom Mix needs to be uh, more uh, known and available uh, because anytime his films get shown. Uh, they go over really, really well, and so this right. is this is why I wanted to to work on this project just to get his name and his films back out there. And then you've got a book in the works too. Tell me about that. Okay, um, which book? <laughs> uh oh, you have uh, well, more than I, one I, book. I, well, I'll talk about if you're talking about the Kovacs book. No, I, I was can, talking you know, about the uh, oh the other. Okay, um, well, um, I'll just mention it. Uh, the Ernie and Kovacs Land will be out uh, in July, published by Fanta Graphics, uh, and I'm the uh, co-editor on that, along with Josh Mills and Pat Thomas, and that's something that's been in the works for about five years. Um, but The Silent Film Universe is a book that I uh, have written, and I'm still working on the manuscript, but I hope to have it out by the end of the year. And this, The Silent Film Universe is a book that is a series of essays uh, taking a look at the visual storytelling language of silent film, uh, what it is, how it works, and why it still works uh, today. Um, it's sort of the, these ideas are the backbone of the course that I teach uh, at Wesleyan, uh, just looking at the way that filmmakers uh, began in the early teens and then continued to explore this, whether it was intentional or not, ways of leaving things out so that the storytelling process also happens out in the audience. It's, it's sort of uh, the springboard is that quote from, from Kevin Brownlee where he says something to the effect that, that with silent film, the, the, the audience is the final participant in the filmmaking process. And um, the, the, what I'm calling the silent film universe is this altered reality that exists and can only exist in silent film because it's silent, because there's a lack of full color, and because of the, the unique use of the speed up uh, that I've been fascinated with for the last 12 years or so. Uh, there's there's a, a poetry uh, and a freedom of expression in silent film that, that does not exist in sound. You weren't just adding dialogue when sound comes in. You're also uh, throwing a lot of things out the window or just uh, just losing uh, losing uh, the ability to express yourself um, to the point where you're you know films like the crowd and sunrise can be made toward the end of the silent film era uh, where where uh, uh, you can't uh, there's a lot of that stuff that you can't get away with 
in in a, in a sound film. So that's that's the basics of it. Um, this started as a series of blog posts that I did in 2021, and uh, I I don't have a, a pub- publishing date because. Uh, uh, the tricky part is as, as, as uh, Janine Basinger, who's been a friend and a mentor to me on as a teacher uh, and uh, on, on this book. And she wrote the forward to it. She said the hardest part about writing a book often is finding uninterrupted time to work on it. Yeah. <laughs> and so luckily every once in a while, I, I, I take a train down to Culpeper, Virginia, <laughs> and, and I have a little time on the Amtrak to, to work on the manuscript but then thanks for asking about the book and uh it's it's uh, it's something i don't know that has been covered before about what the medium itself is and i i think of silent film as its own medium and not uh, a subgenre of just movies right yeah no i i think there's a lot that remains to be written. We're in a sort of pre, still in a prehistoric period to me in understanding how film works in a way that is different from literature or theater or things like that. And, you know, I, I think, you know, maybe only David Bordwell, you know, has a pretty good idea of all that. But, you know, I, I think. I find that missing in so much criticism. So I'm I'm happy to see someone sort of take it apart and say, well, why is why is silent film in this period different? And it did change so rapidly. I always think of the uh, the sound or the silent version of All Quiet on the Western Front, which was made for release in other countries to make it easier to just swap out titles as opposed to having to do dubbing or something like that, which they basically couldn't do yet. And you can see that, like, film language has already changed so much. It's not a silent film. It's a sound film without dialogue. Right. And, and, and no, it's, you know, no wonder Chaplin held on to, right. uh, to it. And, and I think that his, a, a big part of his, his, his uh, little fellow uh, and his character can only exist uh, in that silent film universe. It's not just finding a voice for him. Uh, there are, Things if you take a look at the study and undercranking uh, video essay I did for Criterion's release of the kid, there there are things that are iconic Chaplin routines that cannot happen in a sound film. The boxing routine in City Lights, uh, and uh, so many other things. I think that a big part of his persona can only exist uh, there, and and it's it's really about. Uh, uh, what's been what's left out and left up to us and 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 it's something that happens to your brain unwittingly uh, i i do a show almost every year at a, a school here in manhattan where we present uh, keaton's one week and uh, the lonedale operator to fourth graders to talk about this but if there's time we also do a, an assembly with the kindergartners and i show them oranges and lemons with stan laurel and they don't need to follow the titles. And these are five-year-olds who have no context for silent cinema or anything. And the the reaction is instant. Right. So what I'm trying to pull apart with in, in, in these essays is uh, why it is that silent film, you know, how, how it still functions. And you can take these films anywhere and they still completely work because what we bring up into this, 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 Viewing experience is our own life experience, uh, and and so 
by taking visual cues. And then there's there's you know there's there's stuff that we we fuse with what we're we're watching. One of my favorite uh, examples is the end of one week. You know, there's the first train which we see make a sound. There's a shot of a train whistle. We sh- we see Buster and Sybil hear it and get out of the way. And then the second train comes out of nowhere. Right. <laughs> Why didn't they hear it? Because it wasn't on, you know, as long as we as an audience follow the people on screen. And if they don't uh, get over that, they hear something. It doesn't make a sound. It's like the it's <laughs> If if a tree falls in the woods right. and Harold Lloyd doesn't let us know he hears it, doesn't make a sound. No, no, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there's so much you, more that you can get away with uh, in in a silent film. Um, uh, it, it, the freedom uh, is, is of expression uh, is just it's phen- it's phenomenal, and I think it's uh, something that a lot of people making new silent films may not be picking up on. But I, I think the big thing that that and we're all still getting caught up on this is the speed up. Uh, you have to you you speed up the footage, but you got to move a little slower. And this is something that you know is borne out by watching the films at cranking speed. And also there are these articles that have turned up one by Milton Sills and then uh, Terry Chester Shulman and his his uh, his book on on more on the Costellos. There's an interview from 1914 where Maurice Costello talks about discovering this himself a few years prior. And this is another element of silent film um, that adds a certain otherworldliness to it, that, that it looks like reality, but it isn't. Yeah. And, and, and that's something we're all still uh, uh, getting getting caught up on. I'm still trying to figure it out. And I uh, before, you know, B.C. in 2019, B.C., uh, before COVID, <laughs> I, you know, I, I was part of a, a, the NYC physical comedy workshop, a physical comedy lab. And I would work doing tests with uh, physical comedy uh, performers Um uh, shooting things and speeding them up and moving slower over and over until. Oh my gosh, that looks like a silent film. We would just right. <laughs> we would get the hang of it, and uh, I was you know I was going to dive in and do more of this in 2020, but something got in the way. Yeah, uh, and so hopefully that'll that'll resume either later this year or or next year. But it understanding the language and, and what silent film really is it is a challenge, uh, and 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 hopefully uh, people will find the book, uh, the silent film universe of interest, whenever it is, I'm able to get, get it out. Yeah. Uh, depending on how many plane and train rides I have. <laughs> this you year, should, you but, should get you know. a, uh, a, uh, a fellowship from Amtrak. There you go. The train. <laughs> Don't give me miles. Just, you know, give you know, just give me, give me more free rides to, to work on, on, on the book. But it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with how it's coming out. I've gotten some some assistance and and pointers and tips and and like I said, uh, uh, Janine basically has been a, a, a huge supporter and and the forward. Was, I'm just uh, honored that she she uh, she wrote the the forward for the book. So I'll, I'll I'll have all these pieces and you know Marlene Weissman is working on the book cover. So nice. uh, keep your keep your eyes peeled. Don't keep an eye out. That's 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 that, keep your <laughs> eyes gross. peeled. Yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> keep your eyes peeled for yeah. I don't know what's worse, but to uh to to I'll I'll of course post on Nitrate Phil, but get on my email list and you'll you know you'll you'll find out when that's happening. 
That was Ben Modell playing for the second Tom Mix feature on his upcoming set, The Big Diamond Robbery. Links for the Tom Mix set coming out July 11th, along with the Raymond Griffith set, which came out on June 13th, and other things from Undercrank's last decade, will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Oh, and needless to say, this conversation was held before all the recent controversy about TCM's future. We can only hope. That's it, everybody. Now, here's a boogie-woogie, solid beat. Come on, you dancers, on your feet. The winners get surprised, as you all know, and we pick them by the speed in the class they show. Let's go! That's Count Basie and his orchestra playing the airmail special in a soundie from 1941. What's a soundie? Well, a later generation would call it a music video, though the way audiences saw them was very different. They were projected on film inside a refrigerator-sized cabinet typically installed in a bar or restaurant, and a dime would get you the music and the image projected onto a screen that looks a lot like something the future would soon bring, a television set. Kino Lorber brings 210 hours of these musical soundies to video, with Soundies The Ultimate Collection coming out on July 25th. The curator of the collection is arts journalist and film historian Susan Delson, who took a particular look at one subset of Soundies in her 2021 book, Soundies and the Changing Image of Black Americans on Screen, One Dime at a Time, from Indiana University Press. I spoke with her from New York. They were shown in these great big cabinets, big mahogany cabinets. These were like pieces of furniture. (laughs) uh, And... By today's standards, they'd be about the size of an upscale refrigerator. Uh, And up at the top, there was a screen which measured roughly 17 inches high by 22 inches wide. It was a thick ground glass screen. And above that, uh, on this machine, which was called a panoram, by the way, um, Soundies was a proprietary brand name for a specific brand of jukebox movie, and they were made to be shown on this specific brand of movie jukebox. The panoram was in this big mahogany cabinet, and above the screen, there was a moving marquee, which was a strip of paper that was advertising the panoram or maybe even that week's show. Behind the screen were rotating light bulbs with colored gels that would put up a colored light show when the machine was not being used. All of that would stop when a dime was put in, and the film would start rolling. But it took several seconds for the tubes in the amplifier to warm up, so... Many soundies begin in silence with a shot of um, velvet curtains, like movie theater screen curtains parting, three different sets parting one after the other. And by that time, uh, the speaker would have kicked in, the sound would have kicked in, and so the music could start. 
And the big difference from a practical point of view compared to jukeboxes is that you really couldn't pick the individual song because it was it's just true. It's just a continuous reel with multiple three-minute songs on it. Uh, right. So you kind of needed to fill the program with things that would appeal to everybody in the audience. That was true. There were generally eight films per reel. You know, the the panorams were manufactured by a company in Chicago, the Mills Novelty Company, which was a big manufacturing concern. They manufactured all sorts of things, including jukeboxes, and they set up a subsidiary company, the Soundies Distributing Corporation of America, which I just call the Soundies Corporation. That was set up to oversee um, and coordinate the distribution and um, the production of the films. Um, But they, and it's interesting because in the beginning, it was a real horse race. There were a lot of startups, a lot of contenders trying to get into this field. Mills Novelty, for whatever reason, really ended up as the sole survivor. They were the only ones to turn it into a viable business. But they absolutely recognized that this was a problem, that you really had to see whatever was next. And so they did do a real balancing act with every eight-film reel that they released every week. You know, they it was possible for panoram operators to custom order reels, but most operators just went with the new reel that got released every week. And so this was really important for uh, the Soundies Corporation to get the balance right. So, of course, you'd have a big band number, you'd have maybe a dance number, but then there was this tremendous diversity of what else might be on there. You could have Hawaiian musicians and dancers, you'd have a rumba orchestra, you would have what they called hillbilly music back then, and almost always there would be at least one film with black performers. For most of Soundy's corporate lifespan, almost every reel included at least one film starring black performers. Although you point out that uh, it was often put as the last one on the reel so that if you were in the South and you didn't want that sort of thing in your fine white establishment, uh, it was easy enough to clip it off. Well, you know, that's interesting. I, I just want to make it clear that it was not the, that was not the Soundies Corporation's idea. As I go into, in my book, this was in response to uh, sort of panorama operators in the field, and specifically in the South. They were, you know, the Soundies Corporation was, um, putting the black cast films in random order in the reels and they were hearing that they are, or they were getting reels returned to them with the black cast films clipped out. So just sort of to keep those reels viable, they almost were forced to put those black cast films at the end just to minimize the physical damage to the reels. Sure. Um, now the economic situation for the 
for Mills Novelty or the Soundy Corporation or however you want to refer to it all was that, I mean, they made a bunch of these machines and the war should have been really good for them because it meant people had easy money and they had, you know, time, you know, after work they went into bars and they were looking to have a good time and, hey, there's this machine playing the latest hits. The trouble was that they ran into the problems with materials to make more sounding machines so the or more panorams so the ones they had at the beginning of the war were pretty much the ones they had by the end of the war yeah that's absolutely true they were predicting or projecting a network of 30,000 panorams across the country and in reality what they ended up servicing was um, a network of commercially placed panorams that was maybe a tenth of that, like three or four thousand instead of thirty thousand. So yes, they really. Um, it was paradoxical. There was tremendous demand for these machines, and they really were having trouble supplying them. Right now, in terms of the musical acts that were portrayed in the soundies, I mean, it really was a a bit of everything. I was watching through some of the ones that are on Max. Uh, you know, there's a there's a subset of the ones from the Kino Lorber set. And, I mean, there's mm-hmm. a Liberace film, and there's a film with Ricardo Montalban strumming a guitar. I don't know if he's actually playing it. Um, so there's, you know, there's a little bit of everything. You know, it's kind of a variety show. In fact, they did. Soundies really thought of that, thought of them that way. In fact, the very first catalog that they put out. They called it, you know, Soundy's Musical Review. Um, they thought of it as a variety act. So, yeah, I mean, and you know, we're thinking this is a period a lot of people have gone to the West Coast to work in defense plants and things like that. So I'm sure there's a lot of Western swing and country music. Uh, you call it hillbilly music. You've hit on something I think that's really important, and that is the role that Soundy's played in sort of uh, channeling and getting out there um, some of the actual evolution in music that was going on in the 40s. There, there, the fact that so many different people were coming together in cities to do defense work. You know, up until the war, the country was primarily rural, and the war drew just thousands and thousands of rural people into cities. And there was a kind of cultural mixing that had not been going on, certainly during the Depression, where everyone was kind of economically frozen in place. And so Soundies were an amazing channel for some of that. And in fact, um, one of the discs in the Kino Lorber set, Soundies, the Ultimate Collection, is... uh, devoted to these musical evolutions, and there is one program there, one eight-film set, that's called Hillbilly to Country Western. I want to drink my java from an old tin can when the moon goes a shining high. I want to hear the howl of the whippoorwill. I want to hear a coyote whine. There's that kind of hybrid and mixing and borrowing going on, and it's great to see in these films. Now, you're particularly interested in African-American 
performers in Soundies. That's what your book, um, which I will flip over and read the title, Soundies and the Changing Image of Black Americans on Screen One Dime at a Time, which sums it up very neatly, actually. They represent, I don't know, about a quarter of all the total Soundies, but are particularly interesting now, not just because it's performers that we're more likely to know. I mean, you know, the Nat King Coles and Louis Armstrongs of the world. A particular favorite of mine being Louis Jordan. But, oh, yeah. Uh, um, but also, uh, I mean, the interesting thing to me seems that, you know, it's it's a form of filmmaking that sort of flew under the radar of, of the industry mm-hmm. and is pretty different from how Hollywood was handling black performers at the time. So maybe, maybe talk a little bit about that, what, uh, you know, the way that performers were stereotyped when they got the rare chance to appear in Hollywood films. This is actually um, an important point, which is um, in Hollywood, uh, Hollywood was singularly reluctant to abandon its stereotypes and caricatures, particularly when it came to portraying black people. And with the war, uh, the studios faced a lot of pressure from the federal government, specifically the Office of War Information, about their approach to depicting black people. Um, and the studio's response to that pressure basically was to put fewer black characters and performers in their movies. According to one historical source that I quote in the book, membership in the Black Actors Union during the war fell by something like 50%. So in terms of reaching audiences on film, for black performers, soundies were one of the few options available to them, especially if they wanted to reach white audiences too. There was definitely a race film industry that was serving black audiences, but that industry did not always reach white audiences. And it's interesting that you brought up Louis Jordan because he made a lot of soundies. He was enormously popular, but what's interesting about him is that those soundies really helped fuel a very successful crossover career for him. Um, The way it would work is he would, you know, release a few new soundies to coincide with or just ahead of a live performance tour, and it really helped uh, bring audiences out for him. I like to wake up in the morning with my jelly by my side. Since rationing started, baby, you just take your stuff and hide. They reduced my meat and sugar, and rubber's disappearing fast. You can't ride no more with Papa, cause Uncle Sam wants my gas. I got duration. One of the things that um, I want to point out is that in terms of its approach to uh, film production, the Soundies Corporation, the approach was about as un-Hollywood as it gets. Instead of a centralized, tightly controlled studio system, the Soundies Corporation relied on a shifting roster of small production companies, mostly in Los Angeles and New York. A few of them were affiliated with Mills Novelty, but most of them were independent. And they had a lot of leeway 
in making their soundies in terms of the choice of the songs, the treatment on screen, and most importantly, the talent. And there were soundies producers who wanted to work with black talent. So, and the other thing, wait, there's one more thing. I'm sorry. Sure. <laughs> one more thing is that soundies almost immediately ran into budget issues. And, you know, they had to crank out films every week. They had time pressures. They had budget pressures. And so they were pretty dependent on performers to bring in their own material. And so they couldn't really, they didn't have the time or the money for a lot of rehearsal or for directors to put their stamp on the material that it's appearing on screen. So it was easier for black performers not only to improvise, but to present themselves the way they wanted to be presented. And the last thing I'll say on this is out of the entire catalog of soundies, there are more than 300 that star and feature black performers. And for African-American cinema before 1970, that's a remarkably intact archive. And it documents a period of black entertainment history that we don't have on film very much. But it also gives us this street-level pop culture version of the World War II years. And if we look closely enough, it gives us a street-level pop culture version of race relations in this sure. country during that time. Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing, uh, you talked early on about there's a uh, there was a company that uh, the Soundies Corporation was not too happy about, which was, I think, called LOL. And right. they were using, I mean, they were using white performers in blackface and things like that. And that did not go over well with black audiences uh, in the war years. So they, I guess, broke their contract and wound up getting sued by LOL and all that because they just felt that the, the picture that they were offering of, you know, black black musical performers was so out of date for their audience. Well, that's what's so interesting, because during this same time where the Soundies Corporation was having this dispute with LOL, you know, in Hollywood, stars were still blacking up in studio films. It was still a widely accepted practice, and it was not acceptable for the Soundies Corporation for the reason that you're talking about, and that is that the Soundies audience was not necessarily a white audience. You know, I would say that the Soundies audience was pretty much a jukebox audience rather than a film theater audience. This was, you know, in a tavern, in a cafe, in a, in a bar you would be sort of dropping by for a beer after your shift at the defense plant. And as you mentioned, you know, this was the war. People had money to spend, but they also, in a lot of situations, did not have housing, could not buy cars or, you know, any consumer goods. And so they, you know, these taverns and cafes ended up being like, 
communal living rooms. Yeah. <laughs> um, seriously. And the, the, pan, the Soundies Corporation themselves had said in, you know, some places that panoram machines were most common in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic regions and largely in cities that had big African-American populations. You know, we're talking Pennsylvania, New York, Ohio, Maryland. We have to assume that not all Soundies audiences were white. And the Soundies Corporation actually recognized that. And that was really a big change from Hollywood. Hollywood was still really sort of um, in awe of the South as a movie market and would, you know, do things like uh, put black performers in as special numbers that could be clipped out of reels that were going to theaters in the South. It was a big change, a big contrast that the Soundies Corporation said to producers like LOL, no, you can't use white people in blackface because we have an audience that does not like that. Right. And the other thing that it's really interesting to me is that they, because it's it's basically an urban audience with money to spend, you know, when Hollywood is still doing things like Cabin in the Sky with Lena Horne, where she's, you know, playing in an idealized South, um, you know, the Soundies tend to be set in modern settings. I mean, they're often set in bars very much like they're going to end up playing in. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we, you, there's a real shift from sort of the depiction of rural life for blacks to an urban existence that's, you know, it's better dressed, it's more prosperous, it's, you know, just is a, a different way of showing how black people, you know, supposedly lived or at least entertained themselves. I, I would agree with you completely. I think it's, and it became much more uh, in line with um, the growing black urban populations during the war, it was really much more reflective of uh, the reality for a lot of black Americans. Yeah, now the, you have a, a chapter called Backing into Integration. Tell oh, yeah. me about that. <laughs> um, what does that mean? Well, um, the title comes um, from... Uh, one of the soundies that that I discuss at length in, in that chapter. But, you know, the 1940s was a time period when the idea of integration as um, a, a way of working with race relations in this country, that was the time when integration started to gather momentum as a concept. And soundies were actually a little bit ahead of the curve on that, not because of any deliberate intention on their part, but because they were kind of dedicated to presenting music on screen, popular music on screen. Um, they ended up recording uh, and documenting a kind of uh, integration that was going on in some of the big bands and combos in like late in the war and the years just after the war. 
And so it's not like Soundies delivery, the Soundies Corporation deliberately set out to um, record integrated big bands. It's just the bands that they rec- were recording were integrated. So they were really, this is another way in which Soundies are such an important document of this era. Right. Now you mentioned, I assume the title comes from one of the ones you mentioned, which is called Shoe Shiners and Headliners. Oh, yeah. And it <laughs> it has a sequence in which basically black shoeshine, uh, you know, guys are... Uh, wind up dancing with white dance girls. Now, they're not quite dancing with them, but they sort of back up close to each other as they're sort of dancing individually, which, you know, is clearly, to me, someone thinking about, well, how can we how can we put them together but say they're not together if somebody gives us trouble for this? Oh, I, you know, I don't see how they could possibly think that because... <laughs> You've got them backing up butt to butt, you know, and it's really, it's not clear whether they actually touch, but that is a kind of um, envisioning of, you know, this is, I I don't think integration was really on anyone's mind with that one. I'm not sure what was. was one of the first, actually, to be released. Interestingly enough, it did not come late in the war. It came early in 1941. I think it was on maybe the second reel that the Soundies Corporation released. And it was probably the first Soundie to be censored. Now, um, the federal government did not censor Soundies, and so they were able to take overall a much freer and looser approach to sexuality and gender and things like that. But there were a few key state censorship boards like Pennsylvania, like Ohio, like New York, that did look closely at Soundies. And uh, shoeshiners and headliners definitely did get um, censored. And you know, in, we do include shoe shiners and headliners in the Kino Lorber Soundies, the Ultimate Collection. But I do also point out there that the version that we have there is the uncut version. The version that people would have seen on panorams would have had 18 seconds cut out of it. And that would have included that butt-to-butt segment of the dance. <laughs> okay. Um, well, yeah, let's talk about the, the Kino Lorber set. Um, thematically, I mean, what, what are your kind of focuses as you go through the history of Soundies? Well, you know, my approach to Soundies is, oh, how much history is just embedded in these reels, how much these films can tell us about what it was like during World War II, just for people who were living through it. Um, And I do include a lot of soundies that appear in almost any 
uh, Soundies compilation. I mean, we do have Ricardo Montalban uh, okay. on the Staten Island Ferry, and I will point out that that was his screen debut, that, that film. We do have the young Doris Day in a wonderful number called is it love or is it conscription? Um, <laughs> and yeah. we do have the Liberace one, but we also, and Nat King Cole, and classic Duke Ellington, and, you know, the ones that you might expect to see in any, you know, top hit sure. Soundies compilation. But we really go much further. We have the luxury on four discs to go much further. And so in addition to um, just basically introducing soundies with big band and dance and piano, um, we go into, there's a whole disc that, uh, which, and each disc has uh, six, eight film programs. There's a whole disc on life in the soundies era with, um, programs called Going to War, The Home Front, On the Job, City Life, City Fashion. And then there's that other disc that I alluded to earlier on musical evolutions, which has, in addition to Hillbilly and Country Western, there's Latin, there's Heading Toward Rock and Roll. And I have to tell you, there are two, not one, but two soundies. Um, by Sister Rosetta Tharp in her prime, the godmother of rock and roll, uh, and of course, Louis Jordan. Yeah, um, yeah. And then, you know, hybrids, you know, Latin boogies and um, Western calypsos, things like that. And then another disc that is just looking at women and sexuality and gender. The other thing about this is the last program in each reel is called Straight from the Panoram, and it takes and reconstructs a program from the Soundies catalog that appeared, you know, disc one has 41, disc two as a program from 1942, disc three as a program from 1944, etc., whatever. Um, so, we wanted to also give a sense that uh, of how the Soundies Corporation would have programmed these films. Yeah. Now, so the, they really didn't survive much past the war, but the Soundies wound up having, you know, a fairly long life on TV as filler, basically. But the other thing is, I mean, it really was influential on how TV would treat performers um as you say it's not so much like how hollywood would do it because they know it's not going to be on a 30 foot square screen it's going to be on one i mean that was it was big for a tv set back then i mean if it was mm -hmm. you said like 25 inches or whatever um yeah 17 but, by 22 that was right. big but it's still basically something for a relatively small group of people gathered around it it's not like a movie theater and the the emphasis on you know fairly close in performances of the lead performers versus having 20 chorus girls in a pool or something uh you know just, just shows kind of the way that the tv would go with musical performances as well 
I, I absolutely, I, I absolutely agree with that. And um, it, it was uh, something that Soundy's producers understood pretty early, and and the, it was sort of the evolving Soundy's aesthetic. Uh, and I would say that in that sense, Soundies were actually a training ground for performers in learning how to work with the camera and to work with this more intimate uh, style. You know, you have big band vocalists or pianists or people who are used to performing live and maybe never had to relate to a camera before. And so, as you say, especially in early television, there is this kind of informality. It's very different from Hollywood. It's like um, it's a style that completely drops the fourth wall so to speak, you know, separating the performer from the viewer. There is a kind of living room sort of intimacy in Soundies that you see carrying over into early television. So um, you see that in some of the Soundies performers uh, in in the uh, Ultimate Collection. Dorothy Dandridge was so skilled at this. She's just a master at connecting with the audience through the camera. But also a performer that I don't know very much about, um, a singer named Caridad Garcia, who does a soundie called Rumba New York. She is wonderful at just directly addressing the viewer through the camera. On the other hand, in the Doris Day soundie that we have in, in the collection, you can see she's she's very young. She's a teenager, and she is just learning the ropes on how to, to relate to the camera in her soundie. Um, Liberace, that Liberace soundie, had a terrible camera angle for him. I don't think he even had a chance to look up from the piano. And I'm sure he learned that lesson. I don't think that happened as he continued into television. And then, you know, Ricardo Montalban, I mean, he does make his screen debut in that soundie, which, by the way, is called He's a Latin from Staten Island. (laughs) Yes. He is not really connecting with the camera specifically, but he is so charming there. You just know he's going to be a star. Yeah. So I could go on. There are more. <laughs> uh, you know, there. Are, it, it was so much fun putting this together. Well, yeah. Maybe just tell us a few. Close up with. Uh, tell us a few of the of your favorites from the set. Things that people should look for. Gladly. <laughs> We start out on disc one, program one. I started with a classic jam session with Duke Ellington and his orchestra. This is by far the most watched soundie online. There, It's racked up not quite three million views on YouTube, mostly under the title Sea Jam Blues, which is the number that they perform in, in the soundie. Also in that first program, I love Swing for Sale by the Charioteers. This is great vocal harmony and some wonderful dancing. And we close that first set with She's Crazy with the Heat with one of the hottest all-women big bands of the era, the International Sweethearts of Rhythm with Anna Mae Winburn. 
But even more than stars like Duke Ellington or Nat King Cole or Sister Rosetta Tharp, in putting this together, I really loved discovering performers that I did not know about, like the stand-up pianist Maurice Rocco, the DeCastro sisters from Cuba, the Chinese-American Kim Lu sisters, or the vocalist Gracie Berry, who does this wonderful, sly, sexy send-up called I've Got to Get Hot. Um, and then there's the vocal group Day, Dawn, and Dusk, who are just sort of sophisticated and cosmopolitan and do this job on a fake um, plantation lullaby from the late 1800s called Sleep Kentucky Babe. They just demolish it and with such style. And then there are these little touches here and there, for instance, in the soundy rough and tough. I love how impeccably tailored the judo star stays, even as she's flipping men over her shoulder <laughs> right and left. <laughs> and the women's outfits in Emily Brown, especially the leopard skin hat and purse that uh, the main performer, Chinky Brown, wears. There's, you know... That should give you an idea uh, of the discoveries here. I just hope everyone has as much fun watching this as I had putting it together. I said four or five times, so four or five times. It's my delight doing things like four or five times. Now maybe I'll die, then maybe I'll cry. About him, I'll die, I'm going to try to do it four or five times. Hey, Hepcats and Daddios, that was Sister Rosetta Tharp singing four or five times. And we also heard Emerson's Mountaineers with Montana Skies, Louis Jordan with Rash and Blues, and Shoe Shiners and Headliners from 1941. Links for Soundies, the Ultimate Collection, coming out on July 25th, and for Soundies and the Changing Image of Black Americans on Screen, One Dime at a Time by Susan Delson from Indiana University Press, will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, David Hammond, Ben Modell, and Susan Delson and to Brett Wood and Matt Berry at Kino Lorber. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure you don't miss the next 100 episodes. Subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And I just noticed that our rating at Apple Podcasts has slipped from 5 stars to 4.9. This will not stand! If you haven't left us a rating and you like Nitrateville Radio, please leave us a rating or a quick review to help get us back to 5 stars where we belong. Thanks. What do you think vintage uh, filmmakers have to say to modern filmmakers? I, I think we know the answer. That the answer is horizon line high, interesting. Horizon line in the middle, boring as shit. <laughs>